Pastor Nick's faithfulness in bringing the word uh, a couple of weeks ago for Scott doing the same uh, this last week. If you were, you know, a lot of people gone uh, the last couple of weeks. If you missed either of those, I encourage you to check it out online on YouTube um, and, uh, and listen to those, those messages. Uh, I'm really thankful for people who care for the next generation. You know, uh, just seeing things getting going again and being reminded of all that people pour out, uh, even just in this church, uh, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, Awana leaders, uh, giving their time to serve that we might see this next generation know and serve Jesus. Uh, that's, that's a great thing. Um, and uh, even just being in a parenting class, recognizing that parents have this incredible responsibility and privilege to make disciples of the next generation. And so, uh, just very grateful for all who are giving themselves to that. One of the things often, though, when we talk about the next generation uh, that people bring up is a concern for the next generation. We look at the culture around us and recognize, man, the culture seems to be changing really, really quickly and like not in the good direction. And there's a lot of different ways that we can respond to cultural concerns. A lot of different ways we probably should respond to cultural concerns. So, I mean, you think about the fact that part of our culture is shaped by politics. So we know that, like, who we'd vote for matters, right? Part of our culture is shaped by education. So, like, school boards and curriculum and those we entrust to teach our kids, that matters too, We know that part of our culture is shaped by economics, so like business, what we choose to buy, what we invest in, the work that we do matters as well. We know that part of our culture is shaped by entertainment, so what we choose to consume matters as well. So a lot of things matter when it comes to our culture, what shapes it, and then as we look at how can we change and transform our culture, a lot of those things matter as well. But today in the book of Acts, we're going to zoom in on Paul's time toward the beginning of his third missionary journey while he is in the city of Ephesus. And we're going to see there that before cultural transformation becomes a real possibility, here's what must happen. The word of God must prevail. The power of Jesus displayed, and believers repent. Now this passage that we're going to read, it's long. It's, we're going to do all the rest of chapter 19, starting in verse 11, going to 41. And uh, it's one of those passages, this is a narrative, so this really happened, right? It's one of those passages, if, if we could like watch the video of this, this would be like you would be on the edge of your seat just riveted on all of the action you see take place in this passage. I don't want to read this dryly. I don't want us to hear this dryly. If you read this ahead of time, you're like, wow, there's a lot in there. And, uh, and it is a fascinating passage. Um, so I want us to, to focus in now, to, to hear God's word as it's read. If you're able to, would you stand as we, as we read it? Let's pray first. Father, we do. We want to we look at the culture around us. We want to see it transformed. And I'm just trusting that that starts with us just hearing and believing your word. We want your word to prevail and your power to be on display, not just like in the future, but even now. And so I pray that you would help us, that you would help me as I preach, that we would now hear your word and believe your word and then live out 
your word. We need your help with all of that. Uh, So I pray that you would give that to us in Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Amen. You can be seated. If we're looking at this passage and just trying to kind of get a sense of what's going on, a couple of things that I think are key. Uh, Looking at the context, verse 10, which was the verse before the ones we started reading. Verse 10 says this, For Paul had decided to sail past... Oops, I'm on the wrong... That's verse 10 in chapter 20. We're not there yet. Verse 10 in chapter 19 says this, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the gospel is expanding rapidly. In, now, when we say we think Asia, we think an entire continent. Asia, at that point, was a, a portion of what is modern-day Turkey. So, so that's where it's happening. Okay? Uh, so the word of God is spreading rapidly in that area, and Paul is doing something abnormal. Normally, he would spend you know, two, three weeks, maybe a couple of months in one location. He's now been in Ephesus for more than two years, okay? So, so the Word of God, here's, here's, I think, the key verse that kind of ties all of this together. It's verse 20. So look down in your Bible at verse 20, where it says, so, this is a summary statement, so the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The idea of increase is the idea of growth. It was, it was growing. It was not stagnant. It was doing something, and so the Word of God is, is growing, it's increasing, it's moving out towards more people. And then it says, and it prevailed mightily. Okay, so that's what I'm calling the sermons today, when God's Word prevails. What does that mean? Interesting that the Greek word that we translate here in the ESV as prevailed mightily, it doesn't show up a lot of times in Scripture, But it shows up twice in this same passage. You know where it shows up again? Look at verse 16. I just read that. Verse 16, remember uh, we just read it, where uh, the evil spirit spirit talks back to the men who are trying to cast it out. And then the man in whom was the evil spirit goes after the people that were trying to cast out the demons. Look at verse 16. It says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. That's the exact same word in verse 20. What's happening with the word of God is it's prevailing mightily. What happened here is the man in whom was the evil spirit overpowered or prevailed mightily over the men who were trying to cast out the demons. So that's the idea of having victory, of kind of winning and overpowering everything else. There's all sorts of various forces going on But what's happening here in Ephesus is the Word of God is prevailing mightily. There's all sorts of other powerful forces, but it's the Word of God and the power of God that is being displayed there. And so that's what we see in verses 11 to 17. Man, that is fascinating. Wouldn't you have loved, maybe, uh, to sit and watch that play out in verses 11 to 17? I mean, you read about the power of Jesus in the Gospels. There's people with diseases and people who have evil spirits in them, and they come to Jesus for healing. 
Similarly, now in the book of Acts, that same power God has given to his apostles, including the apostle Paul, so much so that Paul doesn't even have to be present. Did you catch that in verses uh, 11 and 12? God is doing extraordinary miracles. It's not Paul doing them. God's the one doing extraordinary miracles. So much so that like Paul's hanky, which touched his body, and I don't know why his hankies was somebody else, but sometimes his hankies was somebody else, and just by them touching a handkerchief that touched Paul, they are being healed and evil spirits are being cast out. And people love power. And so there's these powerful men. They're sons of the high priest, seven of them. The high priest, Sceva, has seven sons, and they are itinerant Jewish exorcists. What a, what a job, right? So they're, they're Jewish people who are acknowledging that there, is, there are really evil spirits, and they are living in people, and they made it their job to travel around and cast out or seek to cast out evil spirits. The assumption is it doesn't go very well for them typically. Maybe they use some incantations or whatever. It's not working. So when they hear of what is happening with Paul, like it's just his handkerchief and his apron, people are touching it, evil spirits are going out, they want a piece of that. So they start using Jesus' name, the power of Jesus' name. They try to use it to accomplish their purposes, and it doesn't go well. Almost funny what the evil spirit, they're trying to show their power and the evil spirit answers them. This is verse 15. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Right? And then you have this account of these men who who were trying to use the name of Jesus to accomplish powerful things. What are they doing by the end of verse 16? Running away naked and wounded. Right? Getting beat up by the guy with the evil spirits. And this becomes known and it has an effect on people. Verse 17 says, to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. These people who had been accustomed to kind of being attracted to whatever was powerful are finding that Jesus is more powerful than anything else. The word, the name of Jesus, is extolled there in Ephesus. So when God's word prevails, Jesus' power is on display, but there's another thing that happens. Verse 18 and 19, what happens there is believers repent of secret sin. Did you catch that as I was reading it? Believers repent of secret sin. Things they used to do, things that people around them do, things that they now knew they shouldn't do anymore... They're coming face to face with their own sin and they're doing something about it. I want you to hear it again. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Interesting. As the people there who are believers witness the power of the Lord, this causes believers to take sin that had become secret and to bring it out into the open. And they don't just confess their sin and say, I'm going to try to do better. They look at the source of of what they were using in their sin and saying, I got to kill it. 
I mean, they could have sold those books for quite a bit. This was, this was valuable stuff in Ephesus. I mean, they could have sold it on Facebook Marketplace. They could have brought it to the thrift store, and they could have gotten some money at the, right? All sorts of things they could have done. This was valuable stuff, yet they see the danger in it. And believers, convicted by the Holy Spirit, now say, uh-uh, uh, this has got to be burned. And so they take it, they gather it together. Now there's all a range of estimates as to how much this stuff was worth, ranging from the hundreds of thousands to even millions of dollars in today's money uh, that this stuff was worth. They're, they're just burning it. Something that the culture around them valued, something that the culture around them desired, something that the culture around them said, this is totally fine. And believers coming face to face with their own sin and recognizing, no, this is not fine for us. I'm going to kill it. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to bring it out in the open. They do it in the sight of all, it says. Now note, this repentance is happening among believers. right? Believers, like, like repentance isn't something we do once uh, at, at our conversion. Repentance is something that is ongoing. As we recognize sin in our life, we don't just kind of continue to live with it. We turn from it. Right Now, verses 21 and 20, so then there's verse 20, that, that kind of key verse that ties this all together. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then verses 21 and 22 kind of give us a little bit of a, a, a sense of where the rest of the book of Acts is heading, kind of outlining the rest of the book of Acts. Here's, here's some things that are being in place. Paul, this, this great work is being done through Paul and in Paul in Ephesus, but he's not going to remain there for the rest of the book. And so he's getting things set up for how things are going to move later on in verses 21 and 22. When the Word of God prevails and grows, it doesn't just stay in one place. It's got to keep moving, right? And then, so, so that's what we've seen. God's Word prevails. The power of Jesus is displayed. Believers repent of secret sin. And as more people are saved and more believers repent and the Word keeps prevailing a city and its culture are being transformed. That's what we see in verses 23 to 41. When God's word prevails, the first thing we see is that cultural idols are threatened. You, you can learn a lot about a culture. This is what I did when we major, I majored in sociology in, uh, in college. So we, we thought a lot about like how culture is formed and how do you make observations about a culture. You can learn a lot about a culture by looking at what a culture values. And we can learn a lot about what the people in Ephesus valued by looking at what we see happening in verses 23 and following. I'm not going to read all of 23 to 27 again, but, but I read it earlier, and there's this man named Demetrius. I should let you know that in Ephesus, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And when I say temple, I'm not talking like, oh, this was a neat little structure. I read somewhere that this temple to the great Artemis was two and a half times longer than our White House. Okay? This is, this is a huge, not like, I'm not talking like I live in a yellow house. I'm talking like the United States White House in Washington, D.C. Right? This, this is a huge structure that people were, where people would gather to worship the goddess Artemis. Okay, so Ephesus was, was kind of equated with the worship of the goddess Artemis. That's what they were all about. But as, more, as the gospel 
continues to go forward and the word of God prevails and more people are trusting in Jesus, all of a sudden the people whose, whose livelihood was based on the worship of the goddess Artemis, including this guy Demetrius, he would produce for people silver shrines. Basically, uh, like, like little versions of the big temple so people could make a shrine to Artemis in their own house and worship Artemis there, Right? So, so all these people, all these craftsmen making silver and other things are needed to do this and their jobs are all of a sudden threatened, their way of life and their money. Man, you start messing with people's money, they're going to get mad and that's what happens. So Demetrius kind of drums up some support, drums up some concern amongst the other people. Hey, If this keeps happening, our culture is going to change. Our community is going to change. Our way of life is going to change. We're going to lose money. As the gospel grows and more people trust in Jesus and start living differently, they don't value what the culture values anymore. And some people in the culture might think, that's bad for us. That's what was happening here in Ephesus. Cultural idols are threatened. I love the way that it's introduced there in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, right? The, the, the way, the, the followers of Jesus, they're disrupting the way of life there in Ephesus. Well, then what happens? You start messing with people's money and their way of life, they get mad. And when people get mad... Sometimes they riot. So that's what we see happening in verses 28 to 34. I mean, th- this happens, doesn't it? When people feel threatened, they gather together and sometimes riots break out. Like, we don't have to look far back in history to see this happen. Whether it was on, you know, people mostly on the political left feeling threatened by law enforcement rioting in the streets of our city over the last couple of years, or a riot breaking out mostly by people on the political right fearing what happened with an election, you know, a riot right at our own capital, right? This is what happens. People feel threatened, they gather together, and sometimes a riot ensues. This is interesting, though. Uh, if, you, if, if we read all of it again, you would notice a couple of things. It's kind of framed by verse 28, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and verse 34, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So that's, that's the part they get. The only part they really kind of get is, Artemis is great! And then a couple other times in there, we see, did you see right? Uh, let's see, verse 28. So the city was, fi- verse 29, so the city was filled with the confusion And they all get together. They're confused. They don't really know what's going on, but we should be mad about something. And so they all go to this theater, which I read could hold up to 20,000 people. Okay? So this is a large temple, large theater. All these people are, we don't know how many people gathered together, but it must be a significant crowd. They drag some people in there, but they're confused. Paul, my assumption is the reason Paul wants to go there is, hey, There's a crowd gathered. I bet I could preach the gospel there, right? But Paul's got friends who care about him and recognize, like, it would not be wise for you to go there right now. Like, a a riot might not be the right place for you to show up and preach the gospel. So his friends advise him, how about no? How how about you not go there uh, right now? So, So Paul's prevented by his friends from going there. There's this Jewish person named Alexander who wants to get up and say something. We don't know what kind of thing he wants to say, we're not told that, but what we know is the people are confused. But they're passionate, 
right? It says again in verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did, know, did not know why they had come together. You know, like it's just like, I don't know, I just saw it on Twitter and I showed up, right? Uh, like, like here we are and everybody's mad and I'm mad too and Artemis is great and it's just a mess. This goes on for a couple of hours, we're told. A confused crowd riots. Uh, interesting, you know. Small amount of information, but a whole lot of passion. And a riot breaks out. Well, is this gonna, how's this going to end? Well, we saw how it ended in verses 35 to 41. The town clerk would be functionally like a mayor of the town. It's like, somebody's got to do something about this, right? And so he comes in. And he basically says at first, like, hey, don't worry, they're not a threat. These Christian people, the people from the way, they're really not that big of a threat. Like, we know we're bigger, we're better, Artemis is bigger and better, like, we're going to be fine, okay? So they're not a threat, that's the first thing he tries to do. And then he just lets them know, um, kind of a, he's de-escalating the situation by, by letting them know, like, hey, we have a system in place for this stuff, right? There, there's a system in place. He lets them know that. He says uh, in verse 38, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. <laughs> right? And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Let, just have a normal, regular assembly. Let's, let's deal with this in a more orderly kind of way. We're not going to accomplish anything here. In fact, he warns them, like if we keep going on like this, we're going to get charged with rioting. Hey, this is part of the Roman Empire, so even though he's in charge of the town and the city is pretty powerful, it's still under the power of the Roman Empire. So like, hey, we've we got to watch what we're doing here, right? We don't want to get in trouble. And the result is the commotion is quieted. Verse 41, and when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. All right. Man, that, like, it would have been fun to get into more detail, but you kind of get the picture of what's happening there in the city of Ephesus. When God's word prevails, Jesus' power is displayed, believers repent, and the culture starts to be transformed. I started out the sermon by mentioning that many of us are concerned about the next generation and the culture that they're growing up in. It would be logical and probably wise for us to ask the question, how do we turn that around? Like if we want to see our culture transformed, let alone just like even just our own community transformed, how do, how do we do that? Where do we start? Well, like I said at the beginning, it would require people working in all spheres of public life, right? We need believers working in the in business. We need believers working in education. We need believers working in politics. We need believers working in entertainment. All these different things. Like, these all have an effect on our culture. We need to bring our faith in Jesus to bear as we work in whatever work that God has called us to do. But that's not really what we see happening in Ephesus. That's not, that's not the focus. So what do we learn by looking at Ephesus chapter 19? Well, I think there we see three keys to community and cultural transformation. Three keys to community. If our question is, what, how are we going to transform our community and culture? I think there's three keys that we see in this passage. And not surprisingly, like as I say Ephesus, you may be like, isn't there a book of the Bible that sounds something like that? And there is, right? About 10 years after Paul's time in Ephesus, he wrote a letter 
to the church in Ephesians. And you might not be surprised that some of the things that Paul was dealing with while he was there, they were still dealing with about 10 years later, right? So some of the things that he was seeking to teach, some of the things we learn here in Exodus, or sorry, in, uh, in Acts 19, we also see in the book of Ephesians. So for application today, I want to flip over. Go ahead and in your Bible, just flip over to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. After Acts, you have Romans and then 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay? Three keys to community and cultural transformation. I think first and foremost, it's this. Number one, believe and preach the gospel. I think if we want to see our culture transformed, it starts with the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our culture is increasingly secular. More and more people are claiming no religious affiliation. But let me tell you something. A lot of people are now saying, like, I'm kind of neutral. Like, I don't claim any sort of religious affiliation. But let me tell you, from Scripture, I can say with confidence, no one is spiritually neutral. Right? No one is spiritually neutral. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Everybody, everybody's following some course, right? And we who, those who are still in sin are, are dead in their sin. They're not just like, oh, they're a little bit behind, like, no, they are dead in their sin, and they are following the ways of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that would be Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He's writing to the Ephesians reminding them of where they came from, acknowledging that's where I came from too. All of us came from there. Spiritually dead. Dead. Following the way of this world. Following Satan. Under the wrath of God. That's where we all were. And he's writing now to the believers there in Ephesus. Reminding them because this is what we need to be reminded of too as believers over and over again. We need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to sing it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that starts with the words, but God, in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We need to hear the gospel over and over again. Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus, but it's not like, all right, you believe that we're done. No, he keeps going back to it. We too need to hear the gospel over and over again. That's why we sing songs that are rich with the gospel. right? That's why over and over again in Awana, in Sunday school, in youth groups, in life groups, in worship services, we will make clear 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just for the unbelievers, it's for believers as well. We need to hear the gospel. If we want to see the culture around us transformed, we must hear the gospel. We must believe the gospel. Listen, if you are here today and you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, what Ephesians 2 says is that you are still dead in your sin. You're following the way of this world and you are under the wrath of God. And only through what Christ has done, only by God's grace through faith in Christ alone, can you be raised up and made alive together with Christ. So repent and believe the gospel. And once you do believe it, let's be people that preach it. I don't know if any hope in the world to to, to transform the culture around us other than starting with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. My hope is that the word of God would prevail in Iowa Falls as the gospel is preached and the power of Jesus is on display bringing healing and salvation. So that's one key. Believe and preach the gospel. One other thing that I think is really important to note from what we saw in Acts chapter 19, what happened in Ephesus. Remember who repented? It was the believers. Those who were now believers repented. Like I mentioned before, it's not something we do once. It's something we constantly do. And when the Word of God prevails, believers reminded of the good news of the Gospel look at their sin and they no longer want to kind of hold on to it. Secret sin is confessed. The believers there in Ephesus were living just like their pagan neighbors. But they knew they had to come clean. How about you? Let me just be direct. What secret sins are you messing around with? What are you looking at on your phone? What are you watching on a screen? Pornography is pervasive and it's deadly and stop messing around. Quit hiding in the darkness and bring it out in the light. Married people, are you having conversations with someone of the opposite sex that you wouldn't have if your spouse was there? Adultery usually starts with little steps that seem innocent. You justify stuff in your mind. Stop messing around. It's a secret sin. In that same letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Listen, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what they were doing in Ephesus, right? That's what they had done 10 years earlier. They stopped taking part in the works of darkness that everybody around them thought was just okay. And now they're coming out in the open and saying, no longer. This needs to be killed. This needs to be confessed and killed. If you're messing around with secret sin, bring it into the light. Confess it. Call someone, text someone, talk to someone, like not, not like maybe on Tuesday or Wednesday, like today. Make up your mind to do it now because after lunch, your sinful mind will find a way to talk yourself out of it. Right? 
somewhat ironically, a quote that uh, is often attributed to a guy named Ravi Zacharias, whose ugly double life of secret sin was recently exposed, frequently said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. If we want to see our culture and community transformed, it starts with us as believers, no longer holding on to secret sin, but bringing it out into the light. There's a third key. Before we turn to that, I want to pray. Holy Spirit, would you now bring conviction on the hearts of believers harboring secret sin? Would you remind us of the good news that we were once part of the domain of darkness, but we've now been rescued, and and I pray that we would be a people who walk as children of the light, who no longer participate in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead bring everything out into the light and expose it. Knowing this is hard, we need the help of your Spirit to be at work in us, pushing us, pulling us, even now. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a third key, final one. The city of Ephesus was being transformed by people who heard the gospel, believed it, repented of their sin, and stopped living like they used to live. Stopped valuing what they used to value. So key number three is this. Transform the culture through countercultural living. <laughs> Look at how the world is living all around us. Kids in school. Look at what the kids in school around you value. Look at what they love. Look at what they talk about. Look at what they spend their time and money on. And knowing that most of them are not following Jesus, make an effort to live totally different than the rest of them. Countercultural. This is the way everybody else is doing it. This is what everybody else values. We're going to live differently. We need to be reminded to live differently. Our memory verses for this week are Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. Look at what it says here in Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We know that, right? We know the days are evil. So what are we supposed to do about it? Watch the news and complain about it? No, look carefully then how you walk. If you want to transform the culture, probably complaining about it is not going to be the first step you need to take. Probably looking at the culture, seeing ways that you're kind of feeling pulled in that same direction and deciding, God, help me to walk. When you, pray, when you read through Scripture like this, these are hard commands. You ought to be praying through Scripture like this, right? God, help me to walk not as unwise but as wise. God, I'm prone to waste my time. Help me to make the best use of my time. I know the days out there are evil. I want to live just like the rest of the world lives. There's that pull in me. God, protect me from that. The rest of the chapter has a lot to say about how we live differently. Let's just look at verses 17 to 21. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine. That's what everybody else does, right? For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Nobody else does that. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? This is, this is what we do. When, like most of our community, think about this right now. If you add it up, like hey, churches that are preaching the gospel in Iowa Falls, I bet all together this morning, we've got in a town of 5,000 people, I bet we got like 400 of us gathered together this morning in a church where the gospel is being proclaimed, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, addressing one another in those things, making melody to the Lord with your heart, right? Not just with our lips. A lot of people make melody to the Lord with their lips, making melody to the Lord with our hearts. This is living differently in our world. Giving thanks always and for everything. we got a bunch of people in the world, and we're part of them, that are quick to be bitter and complain about everything. Ungrateful. We live differently in that we are giving thanks always and for everything to the God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then finally submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Got a whole bunch of people just rebellious at heart, anti-authoritarian, right? They just don't like authority. Anti-authority, not anti-authoritarian. Most of us are that. Anti-authority, right? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Man, that's a beautiful thing. Kids in school, right? <laughs> who have, like you're surrounded by classmates who, who are often disrespectful to their teachers. What if what if we're the people, though? Like, you're the kids in class who submit to your teacher because your teacher's the authority. Oh, man, that's a beautiful thing. And you do that out of reverence for Christ. We think Jesus is the best. Man, you could keep reading. You read about, man, you want to be, feel convicted, then read the part about wives and husbands, how, how we live in marriage differently than the world around us. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, right? Parents, Raise up your kids in the discipline, discipline and instruct. All this stuff that follows this. We live counterculturally because of what Christ has done in us. We live differently in this world. That's how our culture is transformed. Changing our culture and changing our community is possible. And it starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ being heard, believed, and preached. The word of God prevails when believers repent and stop messing around with secret sin. And the culture begins to be transformed when even just a few of us in the community begin to live differently. It's a lifelong endeavor. It took a while. That's why Paul stayed in Ephesus for two years. It requires fellowship with one another. It requires a whole lot of humility. Because we'd like to keep stuff that, man, I'm kind of embarrassed about this. I'd, I'd like to keep that in the dark. It takes humility to bring it out into the open. It requires discipline. It requires a dependence on the Holy Spirit. It requires instruction from God's Word. It requires us to be convinced that our God is greater and stronger and better than any other. We're going to convince each other more of this, hopefully, by singing that together. Let's ask God for help as we go into the world this week. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the Gospel that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive together with Christ, raising us up, seated with him in the heavenly realms, not because we had done just enough to make that happen. You know, it's not by our works, so none of us can boast. 
We pray that the gospel would penetrate more and more hearts and lives in our church, in the community, in our nation, as a, just in our culture as a whole, that we would believe and hear the gospel and then that we who trust in Jesus would walk as children of the light. Give us courage to confess secret sin and to be at work killing sin before it kills us. Father, we want to see our community and culture change and we want you to convince us again that you are greater than any other. It's true. So I pray that you would convince us of that even as we sing it together now. In Jesus' name, amen.